This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. And welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. There is nothing more devastating to a parent than the dreaded knock on the door in the middle of the night. The knock that will unleash an indescribable nightmare that is both unbearable and unrelenting. They are words that can never be silenced. Your child has been murdered. The shock, inconsolable grief, and senselessness of it all flood every fiber of your being. Your child is dead, and your family will never be the same. The world, as you once knew it, is completely shattered. The murder of a child affects the core of a family. The aftermath of such a harrowing experience manifests itself in an illogical reality as the family strives to achieve the arduous task of accepting a new sense of normalcy. In this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with the father who went through exactly this situation, that dreaded knock on the door. And we're going to hear his personal journey through shock, horror, grief, anger, reconciliation, and healing. Although my guest's story is harrowing and painful, it is also filled with love. Love for his family and love for life. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start talking about the love of family through tragedy when Positive Parenting continues right after this. I'm the only one in school that can tie his own shoes. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. A third of the kids in my 8th grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Learn more about the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University's Family Day at casafamilyday.org. Dinner makes a difference. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Kevin McCall, who's the author of For the Love of Family, How a Knock on the Door Changed Everything. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. Why don't you start off by telling us the story, rather than having me tell the story, about your life before 2009 and then what that call was and what it changed. Yeah, um, I was a... um self-employed uh, plumbing contractor in Pennsylvania. Um, we moved to Florida in um, 2007. Um, at that point, my, my two younger, younger um, my sons, my son Kevin and Ryan, were living down here, going to college, and my daughter Kimberly was uh, still up north. So I decided to move down here to Florida to get into the nice weather. Uh, it was about 18 months into here uh, on uh, August uh, 19, 2009. Um, I had a knock at the door, um, kind of a knock. I was in here working on some uh, business things and in my uh, office, and I walked down my hall, and um, the knock got harder and more rapid, and at that point I knew there was something going on in an emergency-wise, whether police or fire, 
So um, as I opened the door, I started pausing, and um, I noticed uh, three officers at the door. And at that moment, I knew there was something serious because um, there was a lieutenant, a sergeant, and a corporal. And um, at that point, um, I thought maybe it was my wife. Uh, she went to work around uh, 5.30 in the morning, and this was about 7.15 that morning, and I'm figuring that something happened to her, and they were coming to notify me that something happened to her on the way to work. So when they asked me, am I Mr. McCall? I answered yes, and uh, uh, they asked if my wife was at home, and at that moment I knew my heart just dropped. That was one of my children. And at that point I was asking them who it was. They wouldn't tell me. They just wanted to come in. Mr. McCall, let us come in. We're not going to talk out here. I was very reluctant because I knew once I got him in here, I was going to hear who it was. Mm. And um, I kind of started thinking as I'm walking down the hall, um, which one it would be, you know, figuring that it's not Kimberly, that she's up north in Pennsylvania. I don't think they'd be coming to the door. My son Kevin just moved into his, bought a brand-new house. He just uh, moved in um, the day before. So I kind of calculated it was Ryan because um, they had a party they were going to, and I figured uh, something happened at the party or on the way home. And at that point, um, they brought me into my kitchen. I stood there, and... Um, the corporal just um, looked at me. He walked behind me. And then at that point, I, 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 I was telling myself the whole time that no matter what I heard, that I couldn't really react. I couldn't get emotional. Hmm. That I knew that I needed all my energy because I was going to have to, it was going to be a long day. I was going to have to notify my wife and my children. And I knew at that <sighs> point that no matter what I heard, I couldn't react. I couldn't even show any emotions. But I guess I kind of looked unstable because the corporal kind of scooted behind me and the lieutenant um, said to me, and I'm thinking Ryan was in a car accident or something like that, he just uh, said, Mr. McCall, um, your son Ryan was uh, murdered last night in a robbery attempt walking home from a party over in Tampa. And didn't click right away. I just stood there, and as I'm, you know, you're trying to assess what the words were he was saying, murder just didn't, yeah. just went the other way. It just didn't work, murder. And I looked at him and I says, can you repeat that again? And he repeated it. And at that point, um, he started to explain what they knew what happened um, because, um, you know, the, they were, you know, they were um, told through the Tampa police. And these, these were policemen from where we live, about an hour away from Tampa. Yeah. You know, and they had enough information to tell me. And, you know, and I just proceeded to, you know, ask them certain questions and, you know, where was it? Where was Ryan shot? And things like that, and um, they, they answered every question exactly what, like, they knew I was going to ask those questions. It was kind of strange. So at that point, it kept me kind of calm and relaxed, um, and at that moment, um, the corporal said, you want to talk to the detective? He actually picks up my phone, dials the detective, and he says, well, now you have his number. And at that moment then, I was like, okay, this is getting real, because you, you really don't think it's real. You yeah. think you're in a TV show and it's, and this isn't really happening that, you know, someone's going to slap you and you're going to wake up. Now, let me just t t take you back for just a second because mm -hmm. I'm curious about the the difference in the way that you think you might have reacted. Of course, it's impossible to say for sure yeah. about whether it had been a car accident versus a murder. I mean, they seem obviously completely different, but... 
d- does I mean did one of them somehow make it easier? Yeah, I think because um, car accidents usually happen, and your mind can, I think, um, can think through that. Well, you know, compared to saying that someone shot somebody and took their life, I think that's where I'm figuring. Okay, you know, you know, it's not good that he died, but the car accident was more like okay, they were out, and there was a reason why. Right. Happened. Yeah. More the reason than the, the what you know, and then you know the when you say murder, what's the reason? Your mind can't. Right. No, I mean, the, the, they're they're both random, I guess, unless there was, you know, unless your son would have been drinking or something like that, then it would have been easier to, I guess, say, oh, something could have been done to prevent it, but something something like getting shot on the street right. is completely random. So I think that's was, it's, it's where you, I think you're personally, your mind is able to reason that out compared to someone being murdered. Um, right. And so, how did how did the process go for the the next step of it? When you have to clearly you've got to call your call your wife, you or do you, did you go down to her office? I mean, it's the kind, not the kind of news you want to just break to somebody on the phone. Right. So, so what happened was when I, they were getting ready to leave, they asked me if they wanted me to take me to get my wife, and I said no. I said I, I I'll go. I, I really didn't want officers going in her place of business, and. You know, me coming in there, and I said, no, I'll go. And they said, well, you know, you really shouldn't go yourself and drive. I said, no, I know. So at that point, I, they walked out, and they said, if you need anything, um, you know, as soon as we get in our car, they'll be notified. The news will be notified who it is. Because at that point, the news just had that it was a UT student. Um, so I said, I understand. Said, so I would get to your wife. If you don't want her to ever hear it on the news. So at that point, I got myself together, came up the hall. Um, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to ask, assess this whole situation. How am I going to get to my wife? I got to let my daughter know. I got to let my son know. And um, in the meantime, my neighbors all knew what was going on because I, I watched the news. And that morning, I never watched the news. Hmm. So when they seen the cops came up, they knew it was Ryan because they seen it on the news, they knew he was in school over there, and you see three cop cars come up the street at 6.30 in the morning. Um, I guess, and then she, one of the neighbors come up and knocked on the door and come in. She, I said, it's Ryan. And I said, can you get your husband to take me to, to Joanne? And I got changed, and in the meantime, she went down to get him. I called my daughter. I told her, you know, um, all right, can you sit down? Can you get someone from work? To sit with you. What's wrong? Did something happen to mom? Did something happen to the dog? And I said, please. And, and I had to get very firm with her and tell her to sit down. I couldn't tell her what happened until she sat down. Hmm. Mom's okay. Snoopy's okay. And, um, and I didn't know how to put, get that word out. Hmm. I so I just, yeah. I just said, Ryan was murdered this morning. <laughs> she just, you know. And my daughter just started screaming. And I said, listen, I have to call Kevin. i got to get to Mom. She goes, Mommy doesn't know. I said, no, she's at work. Called my son Kevin, couldn't get him. He calls me back. I tell him the same thing, getting the word out was even harder then. And then he just, you know, the, you know, he just told me I'm lying to him. 
you know, no way that happened, and no way that went happened to Ryan. I said, I gotta, I gotta go get mom, get someone to bring you here. And I don't know how, you know, I, I was so um, calm in a way to to work through to make sure they all got here safely. Yeah. You know? Talking to Kevin McCall, who's the author of For the Love of Family, How a Knock on the Door Changed Everything. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Kevin. We'll find out a little bit more about the breaking the news part, but further on, how that affected the family and how everything changed. I'm Armin Brott. You're listening to Positive Parenting. Check it out. It's the Terminator. Hey, when'd you get back, huh? Did you have to shoot anyone? Why are you so distant? Are you not happy to see me? So what's the deal? You gonna get a job now or what? Why are you being so jumpy? Put all that stuff behind you, okay? No one knows what it's like to come back from Iraq or Afghanistan unless they were there. Join other veterans at communityofveterans.org because we know where you're coming from. Brought to you by Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brown. If you're just joining us, talking with Kevin McCall, who's the author of For the Love of Family, How a Knock on the Door Changed Everything. Um, so please go on. So you, you had notified your daughter, you notified your son, and there was still still the wife right, left yeah, to go, and, and that's got to be the hardest one in many ways. Yeah, that was, yeah. so we got in the car, to, to, you know, with my neighbor, driving me up and getting up there, you know, I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to do this? How am I going to go in to her place of business and tell her this is going on? You know, and my neighbor's asking me, what are you going to do? And I'm like, Jim, I got no idea. So we got there. Um, we walked, I walked into, she worked in a retail place. And I walked in and she seen me. And she, I walked away from her for a minute. I couldn't even look at her. And then I walked back over to her and she said, what's wrong? I said, well, how it came up, I just said, um, I called the doctor. I'm having chest pains. I'm not feeling well. Um, I'm just not feeling well. And can you tell your manager to let you, need to let you go because I want you to go to the hospital with me and Jim's going to take us. She just looked at me. No way. I'm like, yeah, yeah. So I couldn't think. So she just looked at me. And I knew she really wasn't sure what was going on, that it really wasn't that. But she wasn't. So I, I, I walked away, and one of her coworkers came over, and I said, can you please Tell your manager to let Joanne go. Something happened this morning, and it's really serious, and we got to go. He walks around, pulls him aside, and he looks, looks at her, and you go. Go right now. Go where your husband needs you. So I take her outside. I got her outside and walked her over to my neighbor's car, and um, I got her in the car, and she kept asking what's wrong. I said, something happened. And then she went through the kids, you know, Kimberly, Kevin, and I, I, I just shook my head. I couldn't even. Couldn't even really talk. And she said, is it Ryan? And I just shook my head and then said, yes. She said, what happened to him? And I said, he was in a car. And she said, was he in a car accident? Did he, and is he okay? I said, no, he wasn't in a car accident, and he's not okay. She said, well, what's wrong? Is he dead? And I just sat there for, it felt like forever, but it was probably 10 seconds. And I, didn't, and I just said, um, Ryan was killed morning um, he was murdered and uh, hmm. at that point she didn't believe me yeah that he was hurt there's no way Ryan got around away and um, 
she just wanted me to tell more of the story, and I you know, can only tell her as much as I knew. And at that point, I could see her drifting into shock, and there really wasn't much more conversation after that. Yeah. Well, let, let's skip a little ahead uh, in in the timeline. How mm-hmm. how did this? I mean, I, the the first days and months have got to be just complete craziness with, I mean, funeral planning and all sorts of other horrible things that that parents never expect to have to do with for a child. But how do, how does the family come together? And I mean, it's it, I, I'm just trying to think if, if it was easier if there was nobody to blame uh, except this random person to, you know had they caught somebody and and how how did you guys deal well, with this a little bit further into the process after the the initial shock begins right. to subside yeah as 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 we as we drifted past the funeral and and all the emotions from that um we we'll all of a sudden realized there's still an investigation no one's caught yet so the struggle was, you know, we were still at the funeral because we really didn't have any answers yet for why he was murdered. So for three, for almost three years, the investigation was going on. And, um, and my wife and I, you know, we were going to counseling and um, trying to work through things. Um, the, the relationship between the whole family unit was kind of struggled at moments and we all tried to do certain things to hopefully make each other feel better or happy when Christmas came and, you know, certain things we, through those three years. And then when the arrest came, um, it still didn't really make you feel like, okay, it was more like, okay, this part's done. Well, because we were just looking towards to get to the trial so we could actually finally move on as a family. And through this whole time, our family is moving on. My, you know, my daughter's getting married and, you know, things are starting to happen, and you're enjoying that, but the whole time you're still dealing with court, um, you know, you got to go to court once a month or once every two months or and back and forth <clears throat> after he's arrested to get to the trial, which was almost two and a half years later. Hmm. So the struggle was keeping us all together so we didn't drift away from each other because we were a fairly tight family, and everybody had their you know, family issues, but we were very, you know, always together and did everything together. Now we were doing it together, but the joy wasn't always there. So that was really the struggle to get to that point. And when we got through the trial, at that moment, because um, I prepared myself no matter what happened, it, did, it really didn't matter because we were still where we were and who we were, that the trial wasn't going to fix any of that. So, I, you know, and my, you know, I think my daughter and son got to there. My wife finally got to there, and the trial ended. It was just we just all cried. There was no joy. There was no happiness. It was just like, I think we cried that we got to this point. Now maybe we can start to leave that behind us and and, yeah. and just consistently work to build the family up again. Was there a sense of closure with the trial, with the conviction? No, I just think. Um, the work closure is I'm learning because um, it's never over. The yeah. Trial, yeah. But it's never over. It was just that was over. So I guess they closed that door or that page mm-hmm. so you could turn the page, to, you know, to what you had to get to in your family at that point. Right. I mean, you hear about that all the time. I mean, the only, my, my only experience with this is 
probably like most people who are listening, watching something on TV in, in some drama, a TV drama about this, where people are always talking about closure or wanting closure. And it just has always struck me that, that you're, as you said, that it, it never is over. Mm-mm. Yeah, I, I think closure sometimes is a word that was invented for everybody it didn't happen to. Huh. You know, because when it happens to you, it's never closed. You know, um, I think it's to make you feel better and you're hoping. And we were all thinking that. And when the trial ended, there was no closure. It was just, okay, the trial ended. (laughs) And that was it. Have you had any kind of contact with the the murderer? No, not at all. Is that something you could ever see yourself wanting? I don't know. Sometimes I think about it. And then I figure, what would that really do? Um, that maybe it's better that I, we stay as far away as we can because, you know, you don't want it to ramp back certain memories from that maybe. So, you know, I don't know whether I'd ever get the, the answers that, if there is any answers, if I'd ever get them. Did you have questions that came up in the trial? Or did no. you get I get, did you get answers to some of the questions in the trial? I mean, finding out the the circumstances or what happened? Yeah, those answers were there. Um, that we got those answers, but I maybe maybe the answer would be as a human being, why did you do something like that? Maybe those answers I'd be looking for. Probably no satisfactory answer could come from that, though. Right, that's what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, that's, I think yeah. that's why away from even thinking about it anymore. I did in the beginning, just as a father, you know, and a husband. Right. You know, maybe you know, maybe you could find out answers. But as we found through all this, there was never any answers. Yeah. It was just things just kept moving along. So where are you now as a family ten years after the that knock that changed um, everything? Uh, we've evolved as a family um, with carrying that. Um, Sadness and, and, and everything with this. And uh, my daughter's married now with two grandchildren. My um, oldest son, Kevin's married. And, and, you know, they're all happy and doing their thing. We're grandparents. And normal life is with you, you know. And through all this, you had to battle the normal life and use those happy times and joy times to keep you in, in the realm of uh, not feeling like you're losing it and, and, and going and, and going crazy, I guess you could say. So um, now, you know, th- there's times when, you know, because you talk about Ryan, it comes up and, and you know, th- there's always that setting, especially, you know, now that it's 10 years, but it never really goes away, especially, I think, um, you know, with my wife as a mother. Um, I You know, I think at that, you know, she's, you know, we all work with it, but I think it's always lays heavier on her as a mother. Hmm. Interesting. Kevin McCall is the author of For the Love of Family, How a Knock on the Door Changed Everything. Kevin, thank you so much for being with us and for sharing that story. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. I'm the only one in school that can tie his own shoes. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Learn more about the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University's Family Day at casafamilyday.org. Dinner makes a difference. 
Hello, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, I've read several of your columns that have touched on the health of men and boys, but you haven't spent much time talking about mental health. Is male mental health different than females? Very different. Within the broader men's health crisis, which, as you mentioned, I've written a lot about, there's one area where differences between male and female mortality and morbidity are especially stark, mental health, the most visible manifestation of which is suicide. Across all ages and ethnicities, American men commit suicide at far higher rates than women. According to the most recent CDC data, between the ages of 15 and 65, roughly three and a half times more men than women commit suicide. For those over 74, the difference is a startling 9.3 to 1. Overall, for males, suicide is the seventh leading cause of death. For females, it's number 14. The alarming disparity in suicides is undoubtedly driven by equally alarming disparities in the underlying mental health conditions that lead to suicide itself, including depression and anxiety, psychosis, and especially substance abuse. Between 2015 and 16, male life expectancy decreased by 0.2 years, which actually is a rather dramatic decline over such a short period of time. That decline was driven to a large extent by an even more dramatic 9% increase in the male suicide rate, which in turn was related to a parallel increase in substance abuse, in particular opiate use among men. Such a change in the suicide rate over the course of a single year could easily be classified as the bellwether of a looming public health catastrophe. Actually, it's two catastrophes. The second is the dramatic increase in opiate overdose deaths, 75% of which are males. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, between 2015 and 16, those deaths increased 20.4% among women and 31.5% for men, primarily middle-aged men, who would otherwise be expected to be among the most productive members of their communities and our society as a whole. Medical providers, members of the public health community, community organizations, politicians, and the media have collectively been unable or unwilling to acknowledge the massive scope of the mental health issues that affect males. As a result, tens of thousands of American men and boys are dying and suffering from what many experts believe are preventable and treatable behavioral and mental health issues. The effects of this collective mismanagement of mental health issues in men and boys extend to nearly every aspect of American society and have broad implications for the ways we provide or don't provide preventive mental health services to our fathers, sons, brothers, partners, and friends. The Affordable Care Act, for example, provides girls and women with annual free well-woman visits, which include mental health screenings. No such coverage exists for boys and men. At the very least, the lack of adequate mental health care negatively affects men's and boys' academic endeavors and achievements, their productivity in the workplace, the overall quality of their family life, their ability to care for their children and spouse or partner, and their level of community engagement and the contributions they make to the social capital of their communities and our nation. June was just Mental Health Month, but year-round, what we can do to help the male mental health crisis? Well, first, most experts agree that to help boys and men manage the behavioral health and mental health issues, particularly those that are inextricably linked to violence, 
we need male-focused tools, programs, social support systems, and clinical care, not only in providers' offices, but also in schools, the workplace, and community organizations. Second, rather than continue to criticize toxic masculinity, we need to celebrate fathers and other male role models. From a very young age, boys grow up hearing, big boys don't cry, play through it, and man up. Those powerful messages keep boys and men from recognizing that they need help and from reaching out to get that help, especially with regard to mental health issues. Fathers and other adult male role models can help boys and young men understand that expressing emotions and asking for help are signs of strength, not weakness, and that caring and nurturing are far better ways of showing you're a man than committing senseless acts of violence. If you've got a question or concern for us here at Positive Parenting, please do send it over. We are reachable through our website at mrdad.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you, but don't go yet. Because as you know, there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. This heavyweight bout is about to begin. The challenger wears white trunks with a blue stripe, and the champ is wearing, uh, looks like an examination gown from the doctor's office. And from the back, we can... Ooh, that's not pretty. Champ, what's with the crazy getup? I've got to take care of my family. Yeah, so? Well, when you love your family, you got to go in and get those important medical screenings. A lot of potentially deadly diseases can be treated if you catch them in time. So you wear the examination gown because... Because I'm a real man. Real men take care of their families and get those tests. Real men wear gowns. Okay, champ. Good luck. Here we go. <laughs> the champ's not wasting any time. <laughs> it's over. This fight is over. Champ, you barely broke a sweat. Any words for your fans out there? Remember, go to ahrq.gov for a list of the tests they need to get and when to get them. What was that web address again? ahrq.gov. And remember, real men wear gowns. Go to ahrq.gov. This message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AHRQ, and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. Thanks for joining us. Over the past two decades, an explosion of new studies has expanded our knowledge of how boys think and feel. In this program, we're going to be speaking with a psychologist and author who has done tons of research and he's going to be challenging some of those age-old conventions about how boys become men. He believes that the paradigms about boys needing to be stoic and manly can actually cause them to shut down, leading to anger, isolation, and disrespectful or even destructive behaviors. The key to changing the culture lies in how parents, educators, and mentors help boys develop socially and emotionally. He's got step-by-step guidance about how to do exactly that. It's like listening and observing without judgment so that boys know they're being heard. Helping boys develop strong connections with teachers, coaches, and other role models. Encouraging boys to talk about their feelings about the opposite sex and stressing the importance of respecting women. And letting boys know that they don't have to be a man or suck it up 
when they are experiencing physical or emotional pain. I'm Armin Brunt. We'll start our discussion about how to raise a boy and build him into a good man in today's challenging times, which are not always the most supportive of boys, when Positive Parenting continues right after this. It kind of freaks me out that some people actually go through their trash to pull out recyclables. That's not for me. Maria Inez Phillips talks about not recycling. I've got too many newspapers and magazines and catalogs in there with plastic containers and bottles and cans. In your recycling bin? No, in my trash. Your trash can is full of recyclables? No, it's full of trash. You say trash, Maria. I say rubbish. Whatever it is, I'm not going through it. I don't even know what they do with recyclables. They make more of the things you use, Maria. More newspapers, more bottles and cans. Out of a bunch of trash? I just don't get it. Some things are very obvious, Maria. Recycling creates jobs and protects the environment. Is that important to you? It is, which is why I put my trash where it belongs. Learn the difference between trash and recycling and more on our website, yougottobekidding.org. I put out way too much trash to think about recycling. See why recycling is not rubbish. Visit yougottobekidding.org today. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Michael Reichert, who's the author of How to Raise a Boy, The Power of Connection to Build Good Men. Michael, thanks for joining us. Armin, nice to be with you and also with your listeners. You talk about how boys are, in a sense, boxed in, confined to certain very limiting roles, and how that has a negative effect on them. Can you explain that a little bit more? Sure, I can. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a, a bunch of different research studies. The one in particular that I talk about in my book at some length is called the Man Box Study. It was done in in 2017-2018, and what that study uh, did was survey and interview uh, about 1,500 young men from the U.S., U.K., and Mexico. What they found was that uh, the young men, those, those young adult men, uh, reported uh, in their survey responses and in their interviews that, indeed, they received uh, many, many messages and cues about uh, needing to conform to masculine norms, cultural norms, and that those norms essentially involve uh, confining them to a very rigid, restrictive uh, uh, set of behaviors and attitudes. Um, and Armin, what was particularly, to me, striking about that research study was that 79% uh, of the young men in the U.S. portion of, this, of the study said that they got those messages from their parents, from their families. Hmm. Meaning that, that mothers and fathers are limiting boys' options. Or what? What exactly? Yes, is, or what think, exactly uh, is happening? You know, yeah. So, so on, you know, and I think it differs by 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 gender of of the parent. I think for moms, the messages are very very clear and strong. Uh, that if they keep their sons close, if they encourage relationship, they risk spoiling their son's masculinity. 
uh, undermining it, turning them into mama's boys. And so behind that kind of uh, messaging, uh, boys and families are being uh, pushed out of the nest uh, way before they're ready in too many families. Uh, fathers, on the other hand, are feeling it's their responsibility, their duty almost, to teach their boys about masculinity at the expense of really backing their humanity, keeping them close and attending to their their emotional needs. So really from both directions or from both parents, boys are getting uh, the message that what's important about who they are is their ability to conform to these man box norms. Um, you know, parents are worried, parents are uh, feeling duty-bound, and so forth. You know, that's that's really fascinating. I, I And what's even more troubling as I'm going through the book is you're talking about how there's pushback when you get out there as somebody who's been in the field working with men and boys for a long time, and I've had the same experience, try to talk about the need for changing things, the way that we react to boys, the way that we support boys or don't support boys, and, and that we in schools or other places need to do outreach in, in a boy-friendly kind of way, that you get pushback, and, it, and it's political in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, 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 I think I use the term ideological, but I think that uh, when I first began this work, and granted it was 30 years ago, um, what I encountered to my surprise, you know, I'm a developmental psychologist and was charged by this boys' school to double down on the rigor of our, of our scientific understanding of boys' development and education. Uh, and what I found was that independent of the, the scientific uh, uh, basis for the evidence, um, there's a lot of really strong emotional investment in certain ideas about boys in particular. Now, we've had, uh, we've had 30, 40 years of a women's movement that has radically altered uh, the cultural norms for girls and women. That work's not done, but girls have certainly been lofted up by that, that, that movement. What we're finding uh, in, in various uh, research uh, studies is that the, the, the concomitant uh, uh, movement on behalf of boys is really stuck, largely stuck in a reproduction from generation to generation of a set of ideas that really have very little to do with boys themselves, their natures and their needs, and much more to do with an overarching ideology, you know, that that males are a particular way, that the, the glorification of the Lone Ranger, the stoic, strong man who, uh, who needs nobody and is capable, at a, you know, at, a, at the drop, of a, of, a, of a gauntlet, you know, to defend himself or defend his family and so forth. And, you know, what I say in, in, in the book and the whole reason in some ways for writing the book is that uh, for generations there have been routine losses and casualties uh, as a result of this kind of boyhood that was designed for boys but not really with boys' needs in mind. What do you mean by that? 
Well, you know, on the one hand, you know, outcomes of male development are not particularly encouraging, whether it's health outcomes, mortality outcomes, uh, emotional development outcomes, Mm -hmm. relational outcomes, educational outcomes. They're dismaying. Um, You know, most most dramatically, uh, uh, males predominate. Uh, on the 15 uh, leading causes of premature mortality. Um, males predominate in uh, suicide rates, for example. Oh, and um, not, not by just so, just so you know, people know. Outcomes, yeah, not, not by just a little bit. It's three to one or four to one um, male, male over yeah. female. It's not just, you know, 10% more or something like that. And I, I actually remember having a conversation with the, the head of the Marin County Health Department and trying to work with him on creating some programming for some for, for boys and men. And he said, well, give me an example of a problem. And I said, well, you have about 75% of suicides are, are male, and about 75 or 80% of opiate deaths are male. And he, he was quiet for a couple seconds, and then he said, you know, if things were reversed and those numbers were predominantly female, I would know exactly what to do and what resources to mobilize to deal with that public health emergency, but I don't know what to do. And it seemed to me that I've heard similar kinds of things from from people in all sorts of different quarters that, yeah, it's, it's boys, but we don't know what to do about that, or it's because they're doing stupid things, or that there's a way of of minimizing how important these things are. Yeah, you know, I so I give that uh, 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 that that uh, commissioner you spoke with a lot of credit for being so honest with you. Um, but you know what I what I what I hear in his response to you is that uh, uh, we don't really know what we should know what's in front of our eyes. I'll give you an example. I did, uh, I was the lead investigator on two global studies of boys' education. And the first study really asked, you know, tell us what's working in, in your classrooms. And we, we surveyed, you know, about 1,000 teachers in 18 different schools in six different countries. We also included 1,500 or so boys, teenage boys from age 12 to 18. And what we heard was essentially that boys are relational learners, that they really require a connection with a teacher or a coach as a, as a way to engage or a, a reason to engage with a, with a lesson. Um, and uh, then the second study was really digging into that and asking what kinds of relationships work and how do teachers do it and what happens when relationships break down. Michael, please hold that thought. We've got to take a quick break here. I'm talking with Michael Reichert, who's the author of How to Raise a Boy, The Power of Connection to Build Good Men. We're going to take a quick break, as I just mentioned. And when we come back, we're going to keep talking to Michael. want to get further into the two global studies of boys' education that he was working on and a lot more. I'm Armin Braun, and you're listening to Positive Parenting.
McGruff the Crime Dog here. Let's hear from an identity thief. Identities are easy to catch online. I send people an official-looking email pretending to be their bank or credit card company and ask them to confirm their personal information. Looks them every time. Safeguard your personal information on the phone, online, and especially at home because half of identity theft occurs by someone you think you know. Keep your identity to yourself and take a bite out of crime. Learn more from the National Crime Prevention Council at ncpc.org. A message from this station, the U.S. Department of Justice, Crime Prevention Coalition of America, and the National Crime Prevention Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Prada. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Michael Reichert, who's the author of How to Raise a Boy, The Power of Connection to Build Good Men. Michael, I know we had to cut the conversation short just a second ago, but I want to have you continue talking about the two global studies that you do you were doing on boys and education. You know, we've had a crisis in boys' education for the last uh, uh, decade. It's become clear, uh, although boys have been uh, underachieving for at least a century, it's become a, a higher-profile problem. Um, when uh, in, in these two clothes I was describing, we dug into this a bit. What we discovered was that boys are essentially relational learners and require a connection with a teacher or a coach as a, as a means to engage, as a way to be motivated to engage. And absent that kind of connection, they find it really hard to get any traction or to buy in. When we went around and we presented those findings to uh, uh, schools and audiences of teachers, what we heard essentially was, yeah, we know that, but, and, and there wasn't anything in the way of a conscious uh, a pedagogy, relational pedagogy, or a set of strategies for working with boys, particularly difficult boys where relationships had broken down. Um, it was as if teachers didn't know what they knew. And, and that's really my point in general when it comes to boys' development and boys' uh, uh, education, is that we're sort of all in a fog because, I think, of these cultural stereotypes that obscure boys' real natures. I think the same thing applies in families. I mentioned, you know, that, that both moms and dads... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are, are compelled by these, by these myths, these masculine myths, to treat their boys in ways that are really counter to their natures and their needs. Even though I think parents understand that boys really are emotional and need to be listened to, m- many families convey to boys the message that they should suck it up, that they should not show fear or heartache or disappointment. Um, that they should be tough, be strong, rise above it. Yeah, and, yeah the you know, whole big boys don't cry thing. essentially leave boys alone in the echo chamber of their own mind. Which is not a happy place to be. So l- let's talk... Uh, <laughs> not in a dangerous place to be, I think. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about how this plays out when boys are not being given proper messages about what it is to be a man and instead they're being told that, that things that are masculine are wrong and, and there's this overwhelming chorus of toxic masculinity, which i got to say I, it really irks me um, because it's, it's just so, so one-sided. There probably is 
such a thing as toxic masculinity in, in that some boys and men are not behaving well, but masculinity itself is not toxic. And it's actually a good thing. It saves lives and does all sorts of other good stuff. But tell us about some of, of the ways that this is playing out and the the effects that are happening. We talked about the suicide rate and, and uh, you mentioned physical health, but give us some, some specifics. Sure, but let me just comment, if I, if I could, on, on your, 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 your reactions to the, the, the very popular sort of cultural meme, uh, toxic masculinity. I, I'm, I, I'm in agreement with you, uh, uh, Armin, that, that the term is actually uh, not helpful and misleading. I think it's misleading because it, it directs our attention away from the real problem, which is the design of boyhood. Boys come into this world, and they expect that we, the adults who are the keepers of boyhood and the managers of boyhood, that we know what we do when we've designed a boyhood for them that's just right. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old grandson, and I'm just struck by how deeply he trusts me to know what he needs and to respond to his needs appropriately. And yet what I see happening to him is him picking up messages from his school, from his peer group, from his parents, from everyone around him, that there's a certain way that he should behave as a boy that really runs counter to who he is now. You know, the freeness of his mind and his emotional literacy and so forth. So, you know, in, in terms of the effects of this poisonous pedagogy, that's the term that Alex Miller used, the Swiss psychoanalyst. And mm-hmm. I think that gets at what we're trying to convey when we talk about toxic masculinity. There's a, there's a poisonous set of ideas that are inherent in the boyhood that we've designed and that, that follow, certainly, that sort of follow uh, a, a child when he's identified as a male. Um, but the effect of that is to cut a boy off from himself, from his heart, from his ability to regulate his emotional state and therefore his behavior. We, 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 we all need what we call relational anchors to whom we're accountable. We carry, you know, the, our parents, for example, in our, in our minds as our consciences, uh, particularly when we're young. Uh, in that kind of conventional morality stage. You know, we hold ourselves accountable to what mm-hmm. we think our parents want from us, and that becomes internalized as a, as a conscience. Yeah. But when we cut boys off from, from themselves and from other people, people to whom they're morally accountable, we're adrift, and we're capable of doing just about anything particularly as we're goaded by our peer group, which is kind of the go-to reference reference group that we fall to. You know, boys, peer culture, brotherhood is not the healthiest place. Let me ask you a little bit. We only have just a, no, we only have just a couple minutes left. I want to make sure that we're able to get to your suggestions for what we as, as parents, yep. as yep. educators, and, and just people in society— can do to change these things. And, and again, we just, just have a couple of minutes, but I want to make sure that we at least lay the groundwork yep. for some things we can do. Yeah, I know. I appreciate the question, Armin. In the book, describe three strategies that I think really are, are foundational skills in raising a boy. And they all have to do essentially with 
ways that parents can deepen and maintain a strong connection with their sons. Uh, the one is deep listening. What we find in general is that so many of us parents, when we're with our sons, we find ourselves reacting to him rather than proactively offering him an open space in which he can reveal who he is, what he's thinking, what he's feeling. So practicing listening to boys in a way that conveys to them that we're really interested in them, we're delighted in them, and that we want to know everything about them. That's a skill that we really need to work on specifically. The second skill is a skill of special time, or strategy rather, and that's really finding a way to carve out regular time that your son can depend upon uh, where we get to go and be with him and he gets to take us wherever he wants to playing video games or throwing a lacrosse ball around or going for a walk or whatever it might be. But the point really is to convey to our son that we're willing to follow his lead and go where he wants to take us. And what we find is that parents can really create that kind of special time structure in their weekly routines, family routines. Boys will use that time uh, purposefully mm -hmm. to reveal themselves, including revealing their struggle. And, and how do we do that in schools? How do we get schools to understand that boys may learn differently, that they may need something, and that, that there's nothing wrong with being a boy? Well, I think that the, the most important, you know, I, I've been doing a lot of workshops all around the world for school faculty and conferences of educators. And, and you know, the idea that boys are relational learners, the data I present are very, very clear. I think teachers get it. And what schools have to do is really provide the, the support and the space for teachers to make their relationships with their students a priority, the emotional labor of, of building the relationship and maintaining it. There's a, there's a role we call the relationship manager that, that falls to the educator, uh, uh, in, you know, in particular. And uh, that role involves noticing the relationship quality, building it, reconnecting if it's fallen apart, and assuming primary responsibility for that role is something that I think in particular teachers yeah. need to understand. Talking with Michael Reichert, who's the author of How to Raise a Boy, The Power of Connection to Build Good Men, a really important and interesting book. Michael, thanks so much for being a guest. Great to have you. Armin, nice talking with you. Nice being with you. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.